Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Seeking What They Sought. And we've got a special guest with us today. Uh, it's not Jesse. We decided to kick him off. He's been fired <laughs> from the podcast. Uh, we actually have uh, in his place, well, I shouldn't say in his place. He's our special guest today. Uh, we've got Dr. Timothy Jennings. And uh, we're, ex- we're just so excited to have him on. And uh, I just want to quickly introduce uh, Dr. Jennings. He is um, slightly more qualified than us to talk about a couple different things we're going to talk about today. So mm-hmm. we're going to let him do most of the talking. Uh, as you heard, he's a doctor, and uh, I guess how I would describe him is he's the president and founder of Come and Reason Ministries. He's a psychiatrist, and he's currently the medical director of Honey Lake Clinic in Florida. Now, that's just a few things. I could go on about how you're an author, you're a speaker, um, but again, Dr. Tim, it's just so good to have you on, and uh, we're, we're just honored that you, you take the time to talk to us. Sean, I'm really glad to be part of your show today. Awesome. Well, um, as we get started, uh, we wanted to just, we, we've, we've kind of warned you about this even before we, uh, we started recording, but we like to keep things a little informal and we want to start just by asking you a little bit about yourself, a little background. And we want to do this with everyone we have on the show. And so I want to start with this. Do you have a favorite dessert? So my favorite dessert is Jay Alexander's carrot cake. Oh, Not wow. any carrot cake, only Jay it Alexander's has to be that carrot one. cake. Yes, yeah, has to be that one. Okay, so maybe maybe we don't have time for this, but what what's the reason why it has to be that one? <laughs> if you've ever had it, you would never question you know, that. It's, it's like <laughs> just, it, it stands apart from all yeah, others. Yeah, yeah. It's, That's fair. It's, I even hate to call it a carrot cake because when yeah. you eat it, you wouldn't compare it to any other carrot cake you've ever had, but that's what they yeah. call them in their menu. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a difference. It's a... It's set, it's set aside. All right. Well, yes. uh, that's, that's fair. Um, so we know you're a doctor. We know you're a psychiatrist and, and you, you probably are very busy most of the time, but what is like one of your favorite hobbies besides eating carrot cake? Uh, what, what's your favorite thing to do in your spare time? Well, you, honestly, m- most of my spare time is, is spent writing and producing. Okay. I write blogs, I write books, I write magazines, I write tracks, I write I get excited about taking yeah. ideas, putting them together and turning it into materials that can help people uh, integrate Christian principles and modern science and what's healthy for their thinking and so I most a lot of my free time spent doing that. Yeah. I, I kind of get that too like it, it's interesting in I say ministry as an umbrella term but you know when you really love what you're doing it's it's kind of you know, the same thing for us, like we don't, um, you know, we don't get paid extra for the podcast we're doing here, but we love it. We, we like to have these discussions. Um, it gives us energy to plan it, to think about, you know, what topics we're going to talk about, to interact with people, listeners, um, and have conversations with people like you. So I, I kind of relate to that where when you're, when you're passionate about what you're doing, it, it, it's more than just work. It actually gives you energy to, to commit to doing those, those side things. Tim, I'm curious, uh, how did you get to where you are now as a, you know, founder and president of a pretty widespread Adventist ministry from, you know, being a psychiatrist? What was that journey like for you? So just to, just to clarify a technical point. Sure. Our ministry is a 501c3 not-for-profit, non-denominational ministry. Sure. Okay. So, yeah. So it's the not, I, I don't want people to think that it, it, it's an, <laughs> an official official yeah. part of the Adventist system. Yeah. No, yeah. So yeah. Adventist it's an ministry. independent just, ministry. Sure. 
Yeah. Th- thank you. All right. <laughs> thank yeah. you. Just want to clarify that. Okay. Yeah. So, so how, how I got here very early in my education, I recognized the difference between reality and fantasy, what's actual and real versus what's pretend. And mm. in dealing with patients, I'm dealing with a real person with a real problem. And I have to bring solutions to bear in their life that actually have substantive and measurable real results to get them well. And much of what I've discovered in religion is there's a lot of fantasy in religion, a lot of myth, a lot of uh, platitudes, a lot of uh, uh, not intentional, I think, with good good um, intentions for many people. But there's a lot of symbolism, metaphor, et cetera, that is never actually interpreted. So what I teach people is metaphor is only metaphor if it directly connects to reality and helps you understand reality more. If, if you don't connect the metaphor to reality, then that metaphor becomes fantasy. Mm-hmm. And, my, and so a, a classic example would be the blood of Jesus. Mm-hmm. The blood of Jesus is a metaphor. It's not red corpuscles that save us. Hmm. When Jesus said, right. unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood in sure. John 6, he was not talking cannibalism. It's a metaphor. And yeah. the life mm-hmm. is in the blood. And if we don't interpret the metaphor to the reality, then we create fantasy that mm-hmm. keeps people from actually achieving. And so many times I've had Christian patients come see me and they will say things like, well, my pastor tells me if I just accept the blood of Jesus, I'll get well. Hmm. But hmm. they don't even know what that means. It's a metaphor. What yeah. does the blood of Jesus mean? Mm-hmm. And so part of Part of what, you know, what I've done through Come and Reason Ministries is to try to demystify and lead mm. people to understand reality. Because when you understand reality, you get back to the God who built reality. He's the God of reality. Yeah. So mm. that, that's, that's what's behind Come and Reason. Teach people the skills to reason through the evidence and come to evidence-based, truthful conclusions about life, about God, about what's actually healthy and reasonable. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Did, uh, Tim, did you grow up? both Christian and specifically Adventist as well? Yes, interesting. I grew up in a home where my mother uh, was second-generation Seventh-day Adventist, and so she raised us uh, going to church regularly. My father, no Christian, no affiliation at all, didn't go to church. Uh, He smoked, uh, watched football every Sabbath, uh, and doing those types of activities. So on Sabbath, we would go to church, and then we would go to my grandmother's house until the Sabbath hours were over, and then we'd come home after the Sabbath hours. So okay. I was raised in, in a, you know, 1960s, 70s Adventist system that had, uh, uh, and I look back on it, I, I feel very much kind of like Paul, who was raised mm. in a system that taught him much of the scriptures, so had a lot of scripture data here, but it was couched in a system of rules, do's and don'ts, things mm-hmm. you couldn't do. We could wait on Sabbath, but we couldn't swim on Sabbath and things yeah. like that. Classic. So, so it had a real legal and fear-based kind of but there's a lot of knowledge that I'm really thankful for right. that I have a really deep spiritual knowledge because of my upbringing in the Adventist church. And it really wasn't until later that all those truths, kind of like Paul's Damascus Road experience, he, he was able to reset all that history and all the truths he'd studied into a different understanding of the meaning of it all. So I'm really thankful for my upbringing, but there was an adjustment that needed to happen for me to really have it become meaningful and applicable. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I've always been interested in, in, that that comes through in the way that you talk with with others. I've I've listened to you know different you know speaking engagements you've had and and read your articles and and I I see a sense of that focus of taking away that fear based system, but also realizing there's a reason for God's law, um, and and 
would you say that part of the fear is not understanding the purpose behind God's law? Is that what you would say helps take away some of that sense of fear, that sense of angst when trying to steer away from this idea of legalism and, and instead this, this idea of a loving relationship or devotion to God? So, so the, core, the core problem is actually how you understand law at all. Yeah. And, mm. and we can get into this if you want, but the, the Christianity has been Romanized. This is what I call the mm. Romanization of Christianity, including yeah, yeah. the Adventist Church. And the Adventist Church mm. had an opportunity to reject the Romanization of Christianity in 1888. Instead, the leadership accepted Romanization, accepted the Roman view of, of law, and hit, we have and, and we've had these two branches of Adventism. Sure. The official branch that runs the church, which is a Roman system, and then we've had the membership that have been in, trying to embrace what Ellen White, Jones, and Wagner taught that it is true Adventism, fighting against the leadership, which has been trying yeah. to tamp out and crush out the mm. true message that was given to the church because it's been Romanized. And what do I mean by Romanized? The, the, the core question, the root to it all is, how do you understand God's law functions? Mm. If you believe yeah. God's law functions like that of a creature, what does a creature do? We, we make up rules, and then we use power to enforce our rules by inflicting punishment. That's how creatures rule. God, the creator, when you worship the creator, he builds reality. He speaks into existence, space, time, energy, matter, life itself. Mm -hmm. And his laws are the protocols upon which reality function and operate. And they include the physical laws, the laws of physics, as well as the laws of health, but also the moral laws. And any deviations from design law are destructive to those who break them, ultimately resulting in death unless the lawgiver the creator heals and restores you back into harmony with the law That's what good. happened when uh, constantine converted is christianity accepted that god runs his universe like caesar runs rome and mm -hmm. that the idea of, of the law was simply made up rules and therefore if the law can be made up then it can be amended and adjusted just like human law so they changed three or four of the commandments and whatever and uh, and then protestant Christianity comes along and argues over whether they could change this one or that one or this commandment, but they miss the point that the real infection is the belief that God's law functions like human law. And the mm. Adventist church in 1888 was confronted when Jones and Wagner came forward and taught that the law of Galatians that was added is the Ten Commandments. Hmm. And hmm. the leadership said, no, only the ceremonial law. And so we had a big division at that moment, yeah, yeah. and the church has been in that divide ever mm -hmm. since. And so leadership, I think, in the Adventist church uh, teaches a Roman view of Christianity with an imperial dictator God who makes up rule, who is the source of inflicted pain, suffering, and death as punishment for sin. And they teach within the system that God killed Jesus at the cross to pay for our penalties, and you must get that payment made to God, or else God is required to torture and kill you. And that's taught in all branches of Christianity. Roman and all Protestant churches have some aspect of this taught in their church. Mm. Have, have you shared those thoughts with any Adventist leaders? And, and if so, what has their reaction been to that kind of, um, that way of stating So about... what. In 2010, when we founded Cummings and Ministries, I had a series of discussions with Adventist leaders in the conference where I'm at in the local university. We went on for a few weeks, uh, and the, the conclusion of the Adventist leadership was, their conclusion is that I teach moral influence theory. Hmm. Okay. And therefore, uh, and, and of course, they teach penal substitution theology. Mm -hmm. So... And there is a reason for that. I don't know if you've read my book, The God-Shaped Heart, The Seven Levels of Moral Decision-Making. 
But I, I've I've gone through some of the the lectures. I haven't had a chance to read through the book though. So there there is maturing in our ability to understand concepts at a certain mm-hmm. level. We, there's something called abstraction or the ability to uh, to take metaphor and see the reality behind it. Mm-hmm. Some people struggle with this ability. Some people are very literal in their thinking. Now, mm-hmm. I have patience. I will say, I'm going to tell you two things that are alike or similar. You tell me how they're alike or similar. similar. For instance, if I say a banana and an orange, I would like you to say fruit because they're both fruit. And then I will say a bicycle and a train. How are they alike or similar? People who can abstract will say they're modes of transportation. Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. who are not abstract, and I have patients do this, will say they both have wheels. Yeah. Or I might say hmm. um, something like a a um, a ruler and a um, uh, and a clock. How are they alike and similar? Hmm. And uh, a a abstract person will say well, they both measure things. They're measuring devices. Uh, a concrete person will say they both have numbers. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so some people really struggle. And what happens is in the more, in moral development, people who don't have the ability to see the deeper meaning in things get stuck on rules, and 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 that's mm. and and that and they gravitate toward positions of authority where they can define what the rules are because they mm. get security and the right <laughs> definitions and the right wow. rules and the right enforcement <laughs> and the right application. And what happens is the church ends up getting led by people who are actually at a very immature level of understanding and, and they Mercy. don't have wow. the, and, and they really, and you see this, it's not me making up. Look yeah, at the people yeah. who crucified Christ. These people had a very primitive understanding. They were rule oriented and they couldn't see the, the purpose that parents give rules to kids is to protect the kid from their own ignorance. It's not because the parents are setting up a legal justice system. Hmm. Hmm. So yeah. in Christ's day, he's constantly teaching them how reality works. Look at his parables. And now he's constantly showing them the design law of nature and how nature works on protocols of life. And they constantly are arguing with him because they want rules and they want definitions that they can then enforce. Mm. Mm. Tim, this, uh, wow. this, is, yeah. this is really rich. Um, I, I'm curious, you talked a little bit about um, sort of growing up in, in, in sort of that environment, that Adventist environment, um, and where you kind of grew up in a more rules-based environment, but then there was a shift. I wondered if you, if you talk a little bit more about that shift. Was there a catalytic moment for you where... Um, yeah, where that shift happened. So in my residency, when I went to residency, uh, I was challenged both by my faculty, uh, three, three challenges. My faculty challenged all those who had Christian belief because my faculty were basically godless and, and believed in an evolutionary worldview. So mm-hmm. they challenged anybody and they thought it was mythical to, to believe Christian thought. So I was challenged by my faculty. I was challenged by all of our reading material. All various theorists, Freud, Jung, Adler, all of these different uh, theorists were yeah. also godless and highly intellectual, highly intellectual. So as you read this stuff, it sounds so plausible, so potentially reasonable. And this is why within the professions of medicine, the, the specialty that has the highest percentage of people who don't believe in God is psychiatry. Because you spend four years reading this very intellectual godless material, it changes you. It's the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. Mm -hmm. And so when Mm -hmm. I was in my residency, for every hour I spent reading the theorist, I would spend two hours studying God's word, searching for biblical answers to these things. But the third thing that challenged me, so my my faculty, uh, the, the things I had to read in my residency, and then the patients that I had before me. 
I had hmm. patients that had real problems and they needed solutions that actually worked. And those solutions had to be grounded in reality. Hmm. And so as I started searching my historic belief systems, trying to give answers to critical faculty, I realized that I had believed a lot of things because I was told by somebody else hmm. or that were metaphor or that were platitude or that I could not explain. Mm-hmm. That's not, it was not acceptable to me. So yeah. I started digging in and really studying, looking for answers that actually made sense on how life works, how our mind works. What is the, what is the nature and character of God? What is the problem of sin? Because all medical or in fact, all treatment problems, the, the most important decision is what is the diagnosis? Hmm. Because mm-hmm. if your diagnosis is wrong, then your treatment's wrong. Mm-hmm. And the plan of salvation is the treatment for the sin problem. And so I went back and said, well, what's the sin problem? What is the actual diagnosis? If you accept the Roman view of law, then the diagnosis is we're in legal trouble. We broke the rules and we came under legal condemnation. And God is legally required to inflict punishment, which is death. And therefore, the solution to this problem is to get someone to pay the legal penalty to God so he won't use his authority to kill us. That's all Rome. It's pagan. And so I say, diagnostic, when Adam and Eve sinned, did God get changed? No. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Did God's law change? No. Did the condition of Adam and Eve actually change? Were they still faithful, loyal beings operating on principles of love and truth? Or were they now fear-ridden and self-centered that they had corrupted themselves in some way? Hmm. So however we explain the atonement, the plan of salvation, the action of of where you apply the merits Mm -hmm. are not to God. He's perfect. Not to God's law. It doesn't change. The action, wherever you're going to make the effect, has to be in sinful humans to reconcile us back to God. But that's not what's taught in the imperial legalistic system. And that's not what's taught in the official stuff coming out from our various publications. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, so there's a, man, there's a, a lot we could go into there. And I, I yeah, would say a as, a, as a, so, so I, I want to keep it big picture too with, within, you know, We've had, and, and this series again is what is an Adventist. We're looking at that that fundamental view of that, and and you've stated pretty clearly already that that you think that the the more grassroots eighteen eighty eight, you know Jones and Wagner way of looking at things versus how the church went beyond that. That that you see there's two two sides of Adventism really. And so, would you say there's two definitions of Adventism, or do you think there's? How would you say that? Are there two separate churches in your mind? Uh, 100%. Are, yeah. 100%. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was on the earth, there was the Judaism represented by the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, <laughs> mm-hmm. and there was the Judaism represented by Jesus Christ. When he met the uh-huh. woman at the well and, and said, but talk about salvation, he says, he says, salvation is of the Jews. Was he saying you should go be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Hmm. Clearly not, but that's what she thought when she thought of Judaism. So there were clearly two completely different systems of Judaism— one ran by the legalistic leaders and one represented by Jesus. Now, notice this, though. They did not have a different Sabbath. They did mm. not have a different Bible. Mm-hmm. They did not have a different theory of creation. They did not have a different God in heaven. They did not have a different dietary pattern. They did not have a different dress code. In fact, every doctrine that the Sanhedrin held, Jesus held. Mm. 
The difference was they had a different way of understanding God's character and law. The mm-hmm. Jews saw it imperialistically through authority, and even the disciples wanted him to use power to set up a kingdom that mm-hmm. operated like all the kingdoms of the world, right. uh, oppressing and coercing, which is mm-hmm. imperialistic. It's Roman. That's what happened to the church. Jesus threw all that off. The apostles threw that off, and they taught the, the system of, of godly love, truth, love, and freedom. And you see Paul, mm. prior to Damascus Road, using the methods of imperialism, taking the temple guard, imprisoning and stoning and so forth. And after Damascus Road, Romans 14, 5, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. We present mm. the truth in love and we mm-hmm. leave people free in Ephesians. I would gladly give my life that my fellow Jews might be lived. a total shift, still, still teaching mm-hmm. the truth as he understands it, but now with a different methodology because he moves away from imperial law that requires punishment to design law that if you don't heal from you will die and thus paul writes the wages of sin is death sin when full Mm -hmm. grown brings forth death james writes and then uh in galatians 6 8 uh those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction not from god but once you accept the roman lie then everything is twisted and we teach that there's going to be a tribunal that's a judicial process. There are record books in heaven that are going over if you got the payment made or not. That God is sitting there having deciding, well, you got this many sins. That sins requires this many weeks of suffering before I kill you. It's all arbitrary and inflicted. And God becomes the source of pain, suffering, and death from whom we need to be protected. And we teach this lie that Jesus is our intercessor in heaven, pleads to the Father to turn again, to, to basically give the Father anger management classes so he can get his wrath under control. <laughs> So, so when it comes to okay, investigative judgment, are so you would say, and and you've kind of shared that the the traditional teachings of the church, you you feel have gotten into this this Romanization mindset. So would you let, say, me, let me finish because yeah. I, I think I got over the tangent. Go the, ahead, the go two ahead. Versions. So just like the Jewish nation two years ago, the Adventist Church has those Adventists who still long for the original calling and message. There was a group of people from all different backgrounds that came together with a common vision. The advent is coming Mm -hmm. and we want to prepare the world for the advent of the Messiah. And Mm -hmm. that group of people was moving forward, discovering new truths that would help prepare people for the advent of the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And in 1888, there came a crisis in which the church diverted. And within Adventism, there's still a group of people that are true to the original mission, preparing the world for the advent. And now there's a group of people who are true to the organization of what it means to be an Adventist, defining through doctrinal definitions, making up creeds, making up rules, systems hmm. of organization, hmm. uh, orthodoxy tests, compliance committees, and all this other stuff that you have to do because it's not anymore preparing people to meet Jesus. That, that of course, is a banner we wave, but functionally what we're doing is we're protecting the organization and we're advancing the growth of the, of, the, of the system. It's better for one man to die than our nation. It's better for us to Mercy. force our employees, our students, and, our, and our, uh, uh, by making them get a particular in, uh, medical treatment they don't want than to uh, lose our, our government funding. Hmm. Hmm. So once again, I find myself wanting to go in five different directions at once, but I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll try to focus it. So, so when looking at this, okay, we, we see a divide in Adventism, and, and for our listeners, we've felt it. So I, I agree with you. There's a divide in Adventism, and for you seem to have made it, and, and I've appreciated this about you, Tim, is that you aren't afraid to say, this is how I see it, and, and you structure it in a way that feels very tangible. So when talking about sin, you make it feel tangible. When you talk about the gospel— um, you, you talk about 
how the Bible isn't just meant to be um, this nebulous, you know, experience where, and you talked about this right when we started recording, which was, you know, this idea of, of fear-based theology where we, it's kind of this sense of unknown, like, okay, mm-hmm. I've been taught this all my life. I know these rules, but I don't know what they mean. I don't know why they matter. Um, you know, and, and you've, you've spoken on this before where you talk about sin as this idea of you can see the results of sin, not just in this future fear-based idea like, oh, God's going to do something to me in the future. No, you can see results of sin here and now by the, by the decisions that I make. Is that a, is that a fair way of putting the way you've spoken about it before that, that sin can be seen in the fruits here and now that it's not just this. So again, it all comes back to how you understand law. Yeah. God's Hmm. laws, design laws, principles of life. Think of them as laws of health. You can never have health while violating the laws of health. Hmm. Yeah. You can't avoid the benefits of health when you harmonize with them. When you start to exercise and eat right, you gain healthy benefits. Sure. When you mm. smoke two packs a day, drink heavily, don't exercise, you will always suffer from the weight of it. These are design laws. They're non-negotiable. It doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't matter your political affiliation. It doesn't matter your religious affiliation. If you break the laws of health, you suffer the health consequences because they never they don't discriminate in any way. These are God's law. The moral laws are the same. They're exactly the same. Mm-hmm. You can't have mental well-being as a cheat, whether mm. it's a sp- cheating on your spouse or cheating your employer or cheating at school. If you're a cheat, then what happens inside of you, you actually cause your fear circuits to fire. You, you will have a conviction of guilt. To avoid the guilt, if you don't repent, you will deny and distort. You will begin warping your thinking patterns. Your character becomes corrupted. Your conscience becomes seared. We mm. can measure neurobiology biologically these changes this upregulates the amygdala activates the immune system you get uh, increasing inflammatory diseases you actually die younger mm. if you go down these paths you can't avoid the the destructive consequences that come from violating any of god's laws now how did we get this way soon as adam and eve sinned they ran and hid because they were afraid mm-hmm. okay we are born in sin conceived in iniquity psalms 51 5 I ask patients, I lecture, I ask patient people, when did you ever choose to become a sinner? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. We were born in sin, conceived in it. When did you ever choose to have fear in your life, insecurity? No, this is a condition with which we're born, and we are not condemned for it. Get mm-hmm. your mind around this. The penal legal system, you're guilty. You're condemned. Mm-hmm. You're guilt. No. Right. Yeah. HIV-infected man, HIV-infected woman get to be- together and have a baby born HIV-infected. What mm-hmm. did the baby do wrong? Right, right. Nothing. Right. There's no guilt. There's no yeah. guilt at all. But the baby still has a condition mm-hmm. without remedy, results in symptoms and death. We are born with a condition that is not our fault. There's no guilt. That without remedy, though, results in symptoms. We call the symptoms sins. And if we don't get it cured, we ultimately die of this condition. And this is what Paul told Nicodemus about the plan of salvation, that light has come to the world, but men prefer darkness to light. Okay? And thus they stand condemned already. See, we stand condemned by the condition, not a legal condemnation like the HIV. But if you take the remedy, and the reason they ultimately are condemned, because they prefer the darkness to the light. So he's saying they prefer the sickness to the cure. And so what, what, mm. what we get condemned for in the end is not having the condition. That's not our choice. 
we get condemned for rejecting the remedy. So the HIV-infected baby is no condemnation for all of us. We offer free antiviral meds. Here, take yeah. the free antiviral meds. Hmm. But if the child under the age of accountability says, no, I refuse them, I won't take them, they're not condemned for the condition. They will be condemned for refusing the meds, for the yeah. treatment. And that's where condemnation comes because light has come into the world. Jesus is the light that lightens all men. And people reject the light. That's when they get condemned, not for having the condition. But that's the opposite of the penal legal system, which teaches you're under legal condemnation. And Jesus came not to take away the sin of the world, which John the Baptist said. He came to take the punishment of God and then offer the payment to God to take away our punishment. Mm. Yeah, That's Roman. That's imperial. Yeah. That's when yeah. you, what you get. And that's ultimately... They create theologies and think about all the things you've been taught in your theology and in the Adventist church that functions to do this for you, hide you or protect you from God. I have a mediator. I have the blood. I have things going on to erase my record. I have a robe that covers me. All this stuff. So when the father looks at me, he can't see me because if he saw me, he'd get mad and have to hurt me. It's all Mm. pagan. The metaphors have hmm. a true application, but it's all been set in a lie that God is the enemy, the source of inflicted death from whom we need to be protected. And the truth is, God is for you. Who can be against you? Who, who did not spare his son but gave him up? How will he not along with you? With him give us all things? Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus? He is at the Father's right hand and is also, in addition to, interceding for us. God, the Father, Son, and Spirit are all interceding for our salvation against the principalities and powers of darkness, against the fear and self-centered in our own life, and against the actual terminal condition they've intervened to provide the light and the solution to save us. Mm. Tim, I'm curious. Um, you've, you've, you've clearly, you've, you've definitely like had lots of conversations on this, and and I'm sure you've went back and forth with those you know who probably would argue for more of a penal substitutionary perspective on atonement and and stuff like that. And I'm I'm curious how you would respond to perhaps just to play devil's advocate. I'm I'm curious how you'd respond to someone who might say, "Hey, you know, I agree with what you're saying, but I also it, it also seems like there is room in the text. It seems like the text is saying kind of a both and approach, where like God does seem to." you know, there's no condemnation, but also there does seem to be places in the text where a mediator is spoken of. There seem to be mediation typology in the Old Testament. There seems to be moments where, you know, Revelation where it talks about, you know, like wearing robes that are washed in the blood. It seems to be there's there's these moments in scripture where a mediator is emphasized. How would you respond and, and talk about those moments um, of, of mediation that, that are emphasized in scripture? Oh, Absolutely. Jesus has been the mediator before sin. Uh, it says, uh, so, but, so the, the, the short answer is, which way do you have the mediator doing his work? Mm. Is he working on God because God needs to be changed? Or is he working on us because we need to be changed? So he is the mediator, mm. the go-between, the envoy, the ambassador, the representative. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John 16, 26, Jesus said, um, and I'm going to tell you plainly about my Father. I will not pray the Father for you because the Father himself loves you. And so he tells us he's not going to heaven to pray the Father for us. Um, But anyway, um, so it's mediation. It depends on which way you have him going. And the Bible tells Mm. us in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God lives in unapproachable light. Unapproachable light is a metaphor for power and truth. Mm. The glory of God is represented as some type of light. So it's unapproachable. Unapproachable by whom? Mm. I'm going to suggest by all finite beings. God is an infinite being. And finite beings cannot enter into infinity. So it was unapproachable by Lucifer. 
Lucifer cannot go into certain councils among the Godhead. Not because God is self-centered and exclusionary, but because he's a finite being and a finite mind cannot assimilate affinity. So mm. Jesus in heaven before the creation of earth goes into the, the councils of God. And God, who is love and wants a close intimacy with his creation, and the creation, the created order, cannot enter into infinity. A member of infinity must leave infinity and enter into linear existence, space-time continuum as we call it, and mm. interact on our plane. And that mediator, that go-between is Jesus. And he would, back then, inter interact with the angels in the form of an angel. He was a mediator, an intercessor, if you will, connecting the creation as close as he can with God. He's always been in that role. And then after the fall, then he took on the role of being the mediator of the plan of salvation to humankind and achieving what was necessary for our salvation. So you said the robe of righteousness. Ellen White says in Christ's Object Lessons, page 311, that... Um, when we surrender our lives to Christ, our thoughts are brought into harmony with his thoughts. Our will is merged with his will. Our desire becomes one with his desire. We live his life. This is what it means to be covered with the robe of righteousness. So the covering is not a covering over. It is an actual healing of the brokenness within and restoring Christ's likeness within. So we become partakers of the divine nature, as Peter said, where it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, or the law is written on our heart and mind, as it says in, in Hebrews uh, 8.10, the new covenant. And when that happens, then when the father looks at us, he sees the perfect righteousness of a son because that perfect righteousness is produced within us. Mm. This is the true gospel message, 2 mm. Corinthians 5.21. I believe in substitutionary atonement, and here it is. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So we could become the righteousness. So that, here's why, we might become mm -hmm. the righteousness of God. Mm -hmm. That's healing reality design law it's rejected by the romanization of christianity which is the penal substitution lie when they teach that justification is when god declares you to be righteous even though you're still unrighteous and that's what's taught a form of godliness with no power to change because for them a, a justification is a legal adjustment in a courtroom in heaven in some record book rather than setting the heart right with God so that we are right in heart, mind, and spirit. New heart, right spirit, as David prayed for. That's what actual justification is. We could go in so many directions. We yeah. keep, I feel like we keep and saying so yeah, it. There's two versions yeah, of yeah. Adventism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. To circle back to that question. So I'm almost I, wondering... So a, oh, cool. yeah, no, you yeah, go, go, you go. Yeah. Okay, okay. I was going to say, um, obviously... You kind of have hinted at a number of qualms that you have with the Adventism as an organization. I'm curious, uh, from your perspective as leading an uh, independent ministry, and uh, with I'm sure you've gotten, I know I know you've gotten some negative feedback as well as positive feedback from different areas of Adventism with your ministry. Um, what one? What keeps you Adventist? And two, why? Do you, what makes you, I guess, choose to have your Advent, your ministry focused within Adventism? Actually, my ministry actually is, has a much broader reach than Adventism. A third, almost half of our listeners are not Adventists. We have oh, people wow. who, who, wow. who, who worship on, uh, on Sunday, but they, they, they rest on Sabbath. They take Sabbath 
and they go out in nature with their family. They rest. They do something restorative to their being. And then they attend church on Sunday. We have mm. many followers who do that. Okay. And, uh, and they don't identify as Seventh-day Adventists. And they're part of other denominational or community churches because they see the truth in the design law message of worshiping the creator and a rejection of worshiping an imperial dictator. So why do mm. I stay? Because I truly believe, number one, that, that there is a movement of people from a wide variety of denominational churches in the 19th century, Congregationalist, Baptist, Methodists, that came together with a vision to hasten the day of the Lord, to take a message to the world that would lighten the world for, for Christ's return. And that, that vision was to call people back to the eternal gospel, the eternal gospel. That means the gospel that's true through alternity past as well as eternity future, which means it's the truth that was good news in heaven before humans were made, before we fell, before Jesus, Jesus became incarnate, before Jesus died for our sins. There was an eternal good news back then. Hmm. And that eternal good news was that Satan is a liar about who God is. The eternal good news is about God and his government, how he runs things. That's the hmm. eternal good news that's been supplanted with part of the good news because of who he is, because of how he runs it, because of his character, his love, his design law, Jesus died as our savior. That's really good news. But the good news is, is much bigger than just Jesus dying for us. There, and this is part of the Advent message that all things in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross in Colossians 1, that mm. there's a controversy that encompasses the entire universe that's going on and that, and that the angels needed the efficacy of the cross as well, not to pay a sin debt, but to reveal the truth, to solidify them and their loyalty to God, to reveal the truth about God's government and kingdom, all of these things were necessary. And so I see that there's a message seen by a group of people that when we get it right, we will hasten the day of the Lord. And I think uh, at 1888, the church was about, and you can read some of the writings in the historical record right after the 1888 period, uh, where um, it was believed that the, all heaven was geared up to come. And that Satan won a great victory then, and the latter rain was shut off from our people uh, from this because they rejected the message that was to light the world. They rejected creator worship, and they went with Roman dictator worship. And that's what we're still teaching in Adventism officially, the dictator version of God. Uh, it's just that we teach it with the Sabbath. And how's the Sabbath taught? It's a sign that he's powerful, that he creates, and that if you don't obey it and you break it, then you're going to be marked beastly, and he's going to use your power to his power to torture and kill you. That's Roman. Right law, hmm. wrong God. Hmm. No, I say right law, right Sabbath, wrong God. Hmm. Seems like your your big passion is kind of reframing and clarifying the, the character of God. Would you, uh, would you say that? The core issue. If you just step back and think about it and you say, how do you understand God's law functions? As creator, he speaks things into a reality. So his laws are design laws. Or does he have any part of his law and government that functions like human law, made up rules that require the way you answer that question results always in how you understand God's character. If his law functions like human law, it's just rules. He makes them up. They're good ones now, but they're just made up. Mm. You are required then to conclude that he must inflict punishment because if he doesn't, there's no justice. Thus, he becomes the source of inflicted pain and death. And thus, 
you end up worshiping a creature rather than a creator. Let me read you Ellen White, uh, a quote from Ellen White, one paragraph. It's in the introduction to the great controversy that she wrote this. The great controversy is between Christ, the prince of life, and uh, the author of our salvation, and Satan, the prince of evil, the author of sin, the first transgressor of God's holy law. Satan's enmity against Christ has been manifest against his followers. The same hatred of the principles of God's law, the same policy of deception by which error is made to appear truth, by which human laws are substituted for the law of God, and men are led to worship the creature rather than the creator, may be traced in all the history of the past. Satan's effort to misrepresent the character of God to cause men to cherish a false conception of the creator and thus to regard him with fear and hate rather than with love, his endeavors to set aside the divine law leading the people to think themselves free of its requirements and his persecution of those who dare to resist his deceptions have been steadfastly pursued in all ages. They may be traced in the history of patriarchs, prophets, apostles, martyrs, and reformers. The Hmm. issue, we have substituted God's law with human law. And as soon as you do that, you worship, according to Ellen White, a creature rather than the creator. Even Hmm. if you have the Bible Sabbath, you're still worshiping Hmm. a creature. So This is the core issue. It always comes back to this. Hmm. So so this actually kind of gets into how we have observed, and part of the reason we're doing this series is it does feel like the Adventist Church has had an identity crisis. Mm -hmm. And for us, it kind of, maybe out of our our youth and ignorance, I don't know, we kind of thought, oh, this is kind of happening more recently. But you've you've talked about since 1888, and and we've we've discovered this too as we've we've gone back and looked at it, is there's been this struggle for almost the entirety of the Adventist Church's existence of... Mm going back and forth on on who we are, what we stand for, what we believe about the character of God. And that's been a big point. And in fact, you know, we've spoken to different people about, you know, bottom line, why are you Adventist? And and usually the most simple answer comes down to the character of God. Like what separates, you know, the 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 Adventist worldview, the Adventist perspective, how we interpret scripture, what scripture is about, what does it say about God? Um that that it's about this character of God. And you're going even further saying that even with Adventism, we disagree about the character of God, even if we have the same doctrine. Um, and, 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 and in many senses, that doctrine informs the practice. And, and we may have some, on, on the surface level, similar practices of keeping the Sabbath. But for you, you're talking about the heart behind why we're doing that, why we believe this and why we do it. What does it have to do with God's character? Um, and... And this gets us to today where it feels like, and and part of me is really drawn to what you're saying because it, it seems like the church is getting more divided and it's getting more polarized mm. in, a, in a space where if you speak out as, and, and you've got your own ministry, so it, you are, and, and there's nothing wrong with this, you're empowered to speak your mind. Whereas I would say for many of us that are employed by the Adventist church, there is a sense of fear about talking openly about what we believe, how we do things, you know, and, and for you, you're talking about God's character as a big, you know, theme about how that informs everything. When we look at, you know, you've talked about church leadership and everything. Where do you think the biggest problem is? Like you've talked about how we define you know, you, you talk about design law, you talk about God's character. Is that is that bottom line the main problem? Is that the the main area we've gone wrong in? Or is there somewhere else that has really just distracted mm. us as a as a church? 
we are the remnant. We are the end of the line of a long conflict that began in heaven. It is the same conflict. It didn't begin in 1888. It didn't begin 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross. It didn't begin in the Old Testament. didn't begin in Eden. It began for humans when Adam and Eve sinned, but the conflict was already going on. It began in heaven a long time ago. And the same issues and the same strategies are at war, and the same principles are antagonistic hmm. to each other. It's the same exact war that's been going on. Ellen White describes it this way. Um, she says, the last great conflict, the last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the longstanding controversy concerning mm-hmm. the law of God. Upon this battle, we are now entering a battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah, between religion of the Bible and the religion of fable and tradition. And she goes on to say, between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah will come the last great conflict and the controversy between truth and error. Upon this battle, we are now entering a battle not between rival churches contending for supremacy, but between the religion of the Bible and religions of fable and tradition. Mm. So again, do you worship the creator whose laws are design laws and thus his character and his energy and his power are always used to heal and save? He's the source of life. He is never the source of death. Or do you worship a dictator who makes up rules like a Roman Caesar, Caesar and thus requires something to be done, the, the laws of men? And what happened in Adventism is the same battle. The truth about the creator was coming to the forefront. The mm. righteous by faith. We become the righteous of God, it says in Corinthians. Mm-hmm. And that was rejected in 1888 by the legal people who have an authoritarian over. And the same battle is still being fought in our church today. And how do I see it? I see the Adventist church recapitulating the Jewish nation. The Jewish nation was Mm. called by God, blessed with multiple resources to prepare the world for the first advent of the Messiah. Mm. Because they had a special blessing, they were specially targeted for legalistic corruption so that the leaders of this specially called group were the ones who rejected and crucified Christ. Mm -hmm. Yet from that group came the people who responded to the truth and evangelized the world. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Satan originally tries to destroy them with might and power and have them killed as martyrs, and the gospel continue to spread. And so Satan shifts his strategy. Instead of trying to kill them, let's infect them with the lie that God's law works like human law. And the church Romanized and went into the Dark Ages and the Crusades and the burning at the stake and all mm-hmm. the other abuses that happened under the name of Christ. And then the Reformation came. And the Reformation was a progressive returning to truth that was to culminate with the return to crater worship and the message of Revelation 14. And Mm. as we're about to do that, Satan successfully introduces legalism, this penal legal substitutionary theology uh, into the leadership. And our leadership has obstructed the final message. I'm going to say it very clearly. Mm -hmm. They've obstructed it. And it's not me. I will give you quotes from Ellen White, where Ellen White actually says, in fact, this is... um, this is Ellen White right after 1888. An unwillingness to yield up preconceived opinions and accept the truth, the Ten Commandments being added, one of those truths of 1888, lay at the foundation of a large share of the opposition manifested in Minneapolis against the Lord's message through Wagner and Jones. By exciting that opposition, Satan succeeded in shutting away from our people in a great measure the special power of the Holy Spirit that God longed to impart to them. The enemy prevented them from obtaining the efficacy, um, efficiency, excuse me, which might have been theirs in carrying the truth to the world as the apostles proclaimed it in the day, after, day of Pentecost. 
the light that is to lighten the whole world with its glory was resisted and by the action of our own brethren has been in a great degree kept away from the world. Hmm. Yeah. That's not me. Okay. And our church has been fighting that. And it's my personal belief. Yes. Why am I still, because I believe and I'm, I'm approaching it like Jesus did. I never saw Jesus go and try to present his truth to the Sanhedrin. Hmm. I never okay. saw it. I never saw, I never saw that. They came to him trying to trip him up all the time, mm-hmm. but he never went to them to try to get them to change their traditions and the way they do things. He went to the people with the message. Mm. True. And I see within the body of Adventism and other like-minded people outside of Adventism, remember Timothy and others were not part of the Adventist. The Roman centurion and other people responding, Jesus said about the Roman, I've never seen such great a faith in all of Israel than the Roman centurion. And mm. uh, and the Roman the other Roman leader. So we take the the message to the people, and I think from this people will rise up the uh, group that are first sealed in Revelation chapter seven. There's a if you remember Revelation chapter seven, the four angels say to the the, the an angel comes from heaven saying to the four angels holding the winds of strife, hold, 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 until the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. And the servants of God through Scripture are His prophets, His spokespersons, the one who has the message from God to the people. And once that group is sealed, then uh, the winds loosen and, and terrible strife and difficulty happens. And then a great multitude from every nation, tribe, kindred, and people are saved. Mm. God, in my view, is waiting for his spokespersons from all over the world who will settle into the truth about his design law, his character, and the true plan of salvation. And when they do and they're sealed, then the winds loosen, troubles happen, and, and people ask, what's happening in the world? His witnesses are there to tell the truth. Mm. And from their witness... They respond, giving their heart to the Lord, and and the Lord comes back. Hmm. So, so when you talk about that timeline, that progression of of, you know, when you talk about remnant, you know, of course, all Adventists are going to think of that identifying marker as the the church at large. the The Adventist leaders, the organization, they're going to say, you know, we are a part of that remnant. And so you have this 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 friction, of course, that that you speak about that there's two in reality, two separate you know, Adventist churches, and, and some might even argue that there's more than just two sides uh, within Adventism. But um, do you, when you talk about Jesus, right, he doesn't approach the Sanhedrin, but but the fruits of him, you know, and his followers, you know, growing in him, the fruit of that after he dies and 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 is resurrected is they do branch away from Judaism. They become Christianity, and they, they become something separate from that, that, uh, from from that religion, do you hmm. do you think at this point in the timeline within Earth's history, of course, as Adventists, we're we're taught and we believe that you know we're in the toenails of time. Like this is this is it, right? Do you feel that there's space that you think that uh, another church or or movement could form outside of the Adventist organization, or are you saying no? This is so close to the end of time that it's it's all going to stay under this organization, but there's going to be a smaller group within that stay true to, to this design law? Well, first off, I'm going to challenge your premise that they mm. broke away from Judaism. Okay. I, I, I'm going to say that actually they continued to develop <laughs> what Judaism was supposed to be. And Paul says a Jew is not a Jew if one is circumcised, but if only if circumcision of the heart, they're a Jew. Jesus said in John 8, you claim Abraham as your father. You're of your father, the devil. If Abraham was really your father, then you would mm. worship me. So Judaism is what we see in the true followers of Christ and the, those people who 
clung to the institutions that they made under the guise of Jewish ceremony. Those Mm. people are actually not biblical Jews in the sense of, of the, of what God Yahweh wanted them to be. And so uh, within Adventism, I would say it's the same. It's the same throughout human history. There are those people who have had the law written on their heart and mind. They've been reborn to be like Christ in heart, mind, and spirit. And they are the true remnant, the ones who look like Jesus in character. They are the sheep, not the goats, regardless hmm. of denominational affiliation. And when Jesus comes back, it's, it's two groups, sheep and goats. And sheep are sheep, goats are goats. The Lord who divides them, his division does not cause a sheep to become a sheep or a goat to become a goat. They are what they are. And people have accepted Jesus and been reborn, and thus they are righteous in character, or they've rejected Jesus and hearted into uh, rebellion, and thus they're wicked in character. That's what they are. Let the him who is righteous be righteous still, and him who is wicked be wicked still. The judicial model has the judge determining. He decides based on your legal adjustments whether you're going to be right. No, no, he doesn't. No. We decide whether we accept the remedy of Jesus Christ, who the Holy Spirit takes what he's achieved and reproduces it in us, and we become righteous through God's power, but our decision, it's our choice, his power. Yeah, and, and I understand what you're saying there, and I, I agree, you know, within this idea of, of Christianity coming into full understanding of, of who God is and what it means to be a follower of God and, and moving away from that more traditional Judaism that 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 is you know, that, that is birthed from Christ and who he is and how he shows the Father clearly to his people. There, there's still a clear observable, right? And I'm, I'm speaking more superficially, right? I'm, I understand what you're saying. Um, but there seems to be a, an observable, tangible breaking in terms of this is Christianity, this is Judaism. And I, I understand what you're saying about, you know, that the fulfillment of the law. Yes, and, the, and Judaism, really that, the Judaism but, stayed stuck and Christianity advanced the true message of Judaism. Right. That's and and super, I understand that. And, but superficially, they look, they are two different religions. They're, they're two different movements that on an organizational level, the way that it, that it is um, run through leadership and everything like that, that, you know, it, th- that develops over, yes, you yes. know, lots of time, but, but when we look at Adventism today, do you see it as it's because you describe, you know, the people that truly have the design law in their hearts and understand the character of God, is there going to be a tangible, observable, uh, you know, way of seeing what that looks like versus, you know, um, oh, it's just going to be some people cross denomination, you know, how do we, how do we see that? So as we look back on this division between Judaism and Christianity, most of what we see is paganism. We see the pagan church. We don't. When do you look back on Christianity? Do you actually see the apostolic church? Hmm. We don't. We, we this is not. Our minds are conditioned through history to see the Roman church. That's what we see. The division. And when they started doing all the things to separate from Judaism, but the apostolic church, what caused the division was one simple thing. Jesus came, and those Jews who accepted Jesus still had Jewish identity. Look at the apostolic church and all the things that they were struggling. What are we still going to do and so forth? Right, they're going to acquire believers. So very sure, Jewish, sure. but they yep, accept yep. Jesus. Mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm. And those who rejected Jesus. It was one truth that separated them, accepting or uh, rejecting. They still had the Bible Sabbath. They still ate kosher foods, still did many of these things until paganism came along and they paganized Christianity. And that's when the big divide came. But it's very Jewish. 
Christianity until, with the exception of one truth, Adventism had one truth to accept. And that is the truth that God's laws, design law, and the Ten Commandments were added. It's not imperial. And we rejected that truth institutionally. And so our institution currently functions very much like the institution of Judaism after Christ. Hmm. Within the institution of Judaism, even though they rejected Christ, they still had the scriptures so that any Jew who opened Isaiah could read from Isaiah the truth and accept Jesus. And within Adventism, we still have the Bible. We still have the writings of Ellen White. And so any Adventist who picks up those things and begins studying for themselves will discover the truth. Hmm. So the truth is still within the organization, but it's not coming from the Sanhedrin, the general conference. <laughs> this, this, this is all. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really appreciating your perspective. Um, Dr. Jennings, and I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, recently you're probably aware of the Ted Wilson sermon at annual council and the, the tweets that he, that he shared, he, he, he dropped a list of 16 confusing, and I want to quote, 16 confusing interruptions by the devil that tend to derail God's mission as entrusted to the Seventh-day Adventist church, which included a lot of things there. We have, we talked about this in a previous episode, um, but for anyone who didn't catch that one, there's a lot of things on this list, confusion and misinformation about the Godhead and Trinity, misunderstandings about human sexuality and, and so on. And I wondered, um, you know, in response to those points, curious if you, if you see those as threats, quote unquote, to the Adventist identity, um, you, you know, you've talked a lot today about sort of this divide between the organizing, the organizational structure, the general conference and people at sort of at a, at a grassroots movement about this sort of two Adventisms coexisting. And I wondered if, if you agree with, with President Wilson about these threats to the Adventist identity, would you add or remove anything to the list? Or would you just come back to this core issue about the character of God? So, so as I see it, the problem, I have, I have empathy for Elder Wilson. He's, he's trying to hold together from his perspective, an institution that is fragmenting hmm. and he will fail because he doesn't have the actual remedy to the problem because he's perpetuating the actual cause of the fragmentation. What he's identifying more, yeah. as 16 elements are symptoms of the problem. They're the mm -hmm. symptoms. They are not the problem. Hmm. They're right. the invariable symptoms that always happen when you accept the problem in your baseline methodology. And the problem baseline methodology is God's law works like human law. Hmm. And if God's law works like human law, think about all the laws in your City government, county government, state government, federal government, how many laws are there? They keep multiplying. They keep multiplying. They keep dividing. They keep arguing back and forth. They keep adjusting because this is it's constant. And this is what happens. And so it's what's happened to Christianity. 2018 survey found that there's currently 41,000 different Christian groups out there divided, hmm. all arguing the Bible is the basis of their faith. 41,000 different groups. How is that possible? Because once you accept that God's law works like human law, 
And therefore, it's a system of rules made up. We have to find the right rules. We have to do it the right way. We have the right ceremony. We have to baptize this way or that way. Go to church this day or that day. Do communion this way or that way. All these different things. And somebody reads one text here and interprets it that way there. Mm-hmm. And you have all these mm-hmm. constant divisions and, and multiplications and, and fragmentation. And that's what's happening in Adventism. But when you get back to design law, it's very interesting. When you get back to design law, there's actually, and this is the unity inherent in our faith. When you understand the principles upon which life is built, you can argue over them, but you can't change them. If you want to actually get strong at something, this is a law of exertion. If you want to get strong at anything, you must exercise it. Whether it's physical muscles, language skills, you got to speak the language. Music, you got to practice your instrument. Math, you got to work problems. If you want to have love for people, you actually have to get out there and love people. Hmm. Mm-hmm. You have to exercise. Because if you yeah. don't use it, you... Lose it. Yeah. Lose it. This is yeah. a law of exertion, one of God's design laws. It's just how reality works. People can say, oh, it's not true, but it is. It's very testable. It's reproducible. The law of worship, by beholding, we become changed, it says in Second Corinthians, uh, in psychiatry called mm-hmm. modeling. We actually change neurobiologically, psychologically, and characterologically to become like the God we worship. And in my book, The God-Shaped Brain, I mm-hmm. document, you can see this um, neurobiologically in brain scans, that brain structure changes based on the God you worship. And physiologically, you get different benefits. And the data shows that only worshiping a God of love that Jesus revealed is healthy. If you worship mm. a dictator God, a punishing God, an authoritarian God, it, it, it activates fear circuitry and causes physiological health problems. Mm. And so we mm-hmm. become like the God. You worship an authoritarian dictator, you become a dictator. And guess what? The data shows that when Christian homes... There's no difference than non-Christian homes in child abuse rates, pornography use rates, addiction rates, and uh, spouse abuse rates. Hmm. How can that be true? People who claim Jesus is their Savior have the same addictions and abuse problems that people who don't even acknowledge him? Yeah, why? Because they have a pagan version of Christianity, a form hmm. of godliness with no power. It's legal adjustments for my sins in a book way off there, not actually power within here to give me new hearts, motives, drives that I can actually love others more than myself. That's true Christianity. And penal legal substitution cheats people out of it. It's fraudulent. Mm. And, and, and I see what you're saying there because it feels like there's always been this friction of, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, I should experience transformation in my life. He should be working in and through me. And then we get this dissonance of where, you know, and I know I can speak for all of us. We've gone through that growing up. And we've known, Tim, we've known each other since high school and even even earlier. And we've gone through those battles of of trying to follow Jesus and still, you know, holding on to sins and struggles that we've had and having that dissonance of, you know, I'm not good enough. I, you know, I'm a fraud. I, I have to be afraid that, you know, I'm pretending I'm not authentically a follower of Jesus. And it was that dissonance of genuinely seeking God while also still having things that felt like this baggage weighing us down, you know, and, and that is, that that leads into it it almost increases the fear of you know and, and especially when you're young kids you know you, you fear this idea of oh what am mm-hmm. i going to do what sin am i going to do that's going to keep me out of heaven you know like what if what if god pa- comes back on thursday and i i sin that morning you know in that mindset and and that sounds really elementary but i think in a sense that happens still today even as we get older and oh, organizationally yeah. as well there's this <laughs> fear based sense of you know um what law model not good is enough. that fear coming from what law right. model is that fear coming from? Well, what you talk about, that's what I'm saying, is this penal substitution, This it's its a whole framework that I think we all grew up in a sense. And I this is the crazy part, is the the Avenist church would fight back and say, no, we have been the, the 
the lighthouse in Christianity to fight against the fear-based God, right? We, we proudly stand on, on this, this concept, of course, of, of, you know, we don't burn forever in hell, right? And, and we talk about the beauty of Sabbath and the beauty of health and all these other areas. And, and so when, when you talk about this, Tim, it, I, I, it's crazy to think that I feel like a lot of Adventists, including leaders would say, amen to it, but also say, oh, but we're part of that. Like we're, we're not, we're not doing as you say, we're not, we're not, you know, in this, this penal substitute so idea. I, I, well, I can tell you that's not true. Uh, that when I had those conversations, the, one of the books that they, um, they cited as a textbook for our discussion is the book Cross of Christ by Knight, published mm. by the Review. And if you read that book, which is the whole supposedly the current theological, you know, treatise on all things atonement, the entire book is filled with penal substitution theology and imperial law. And God is the source of inflicted pain and he is angry and his wrath must be propitiated and on and on it goes. It's quite perverse. Uh, and, and then hmm. if you look in our quarterlies, cause I, I teach out of them, I see it all the time. Uh, it's constantly taught that God in justice must use his power to, to rain fire down and torture and, and, uh, and et cetera, et cetera. So no, it's deeply embedded because of the, uh, because of the assumption of the law that they have. Uh, and, and they want God and I understand they want God to be just, they want a just hmm. God. And, and they don't, and they're blind to the fact that they've accepted Roman understanding of law. And so it's never even questioned. They don't even, law works like this. And if law works like this, you've got to hold people accountable. If you don't hold people accountable, there's, then, then everybody gets away with everything. And then we have chaos. You have to have order. And we have a God of order. So he has to hold people accountable. He has to punish. He has to judge. And of course, he won't punish them more than he deserves. He's really fair. He won't do it for all eternity. He'll only maybe torture you for a few hours before, before he kills you. Hmm. But still, they don't even realize uh, that that the pain, suffering, and death is coming out from God. They don't realize that that to teach that actually violates one of God's laws. Hmm. You can, and the, that's the law of liberty. You cannot have love without freedom. Yeah. You cannot get love by going to somebody and saying, "If you don't love me, I'm going to torture you and kill you." Yeah, you can't get I, it. I, I would still, I would still push back and say that that. Again, I, I haven't had a conversation with every single person about this, but but I feel like the pushback would be, no, we, we agree that God is not the the one to be feared as this punishment. Like the sin is a result of, you know, our, our choice to to reject God and reject his love and protection and mercy is what causes us the the pain and death. It's the the sin is not, you know, God sitting up there as this angry God that's gonna zap us, you know. He it's it's the result of us choosing a life away from him. That's the natural consequences. So when you talk about moral law, it's that same tangible result of if I go against God's law, it's not that he's going to be angry and attack me. It's I've chosen a life that's going to result inevitably in my demise and in, in my pain and suffering and the people, possibly even the people around me based on my, my decisions. I, I feel like that would be pretty core Adventist theology, but you're saying that you, you feel that Adventism teaches that God is the the one that inflicts this pain. So he should be the one that's feared and he's the result of the, the consequences. So 27 of fundamental beliefs, 27 fundamental beliefs, page one, I think page 111 says for the God of love for, for a loving God to maintain his justice and righteousness, the atoning death of Jesus Christ became a moral and legal necessity. God's justice requires that sin be carried to judgment. God must therefore execute judgment on sin and thus on the sinner. In this execution, 
the Son of God took our place, the sinner's place, according to God's will. And then this is out of Ministry Magazine. Why did God the Father choose a cross to be the instrument of death? Why did he not choose to have Christ instantly beheaded or quickly run through with a spear or a sword? Was God unjust in executing judgment on Christ with a, with a cross when he could have done it by beheading a noose, a sword, a gas chamber, a bolt of lightning, or a lethal injection? Or the review from the Biblical Research Institute. One of the fundamental problems with the moral influence theory is that it rejects the substitutionary nature of Christ's death, the idea that God had to kill the innocent instead of the guilty in order to save us is considered a violation of justice. Or from the quarterly, the Hebrew wording of the word Leviticus 9.24 and 10.2 uh, was the same as the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed. Consumed what? In the first case, the offering, and the other, the sinner's. What a powerful representation of the plan of salvation at the cross, the fire from God, the wrath of God consumed the offering, and that was Jesus. Think I'm making this up? Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And and I I, I would I would honestly That's all pagan. Yeah, Every yeah. bit of that's pagan. That's not true. And yeah, that's I'm almost being taught from our organization. I'm almost curious. Um Yeah, Anthony, go. Yeah, I'm I'm almost curious. Um and again, Tim not here to necessarily debate atonement theory with you um but i'm i'm curious like how you would respond perhaps to the pushback um you know a, a lot of my seminary professors would probably say to what you're saying like you know like yes you know m m perhaps we even agree with a lot of what you're saying but it seems like you're emphasizing you know the god of of love over the god of justice when god in scripture seems to be a god both of love and justice you know we have romans uh five six and seven and eight but we also have romans nine where paul talks about the wrath of god god has wrath against sin and etc cetera, etc cetera. how would you respond to sort of that type of feedback or or critical um response to thank you for the question it's a great question um and it all goes back to the law you hold hmm. justice how do you define what justice is Justice is defined by the law. If your law is Roman, then justice is inflicting punishment. And that's why they say he's not only loving, he's also. But if your law is design law, what is the just thing to do for a child who disobeys the parent and, and the parent's rule is never play with the pesticides under the sink? Hmm. And the child, for whatever reason, plays, gets poisons themselves, they're seizing and foaming at the mouth. If the parent is going to do what's, what's just, do they pull out a belt and beat them? Or do they do everything they can to save them? What's the just and right thing for the parent to do in that case? You see, the rule was only given to protect them from the design law breaches that actually harm and injure. And the just and right thing to do is to eliminate the cause of the pain, suffering, and death, which is the toxin, and restore them to life. So God's justice is the interventions with the problem of sin to eradicate and destroy sin. And thus it says in Isaiah chapter 1 that I will take vengeance upon them. I will eradicate their iniquity and take away the, and purge their dross and, and get rid of them. So God's wrath is not against the sinner. It's against the sin in the same way that, a, that an oncologist cancer doctor uses a radiation knife or chemotherapy to destroy cancer, not to destroy the patient. 
And so, in, in, and then there's another element of God's wrath that Paul talks about in Romans 1, about God letting go and giving up people to their full choice if they insist on rebelling and won't let him heal. In the same way, a doctor, I've got a cure, but you refuse it, you refuse it, you refuse it. The doctor lets you refuse it, and then the disease kills you. And this is what the Bible actually teaches. But maybe I should explain why Christ had to die. Why did he have to die? Before well, you go down that road, could I... Had to, he, sorry, sorry, I'll let you finish off a well, I'm, I'm, I'm almost curious. Well, no, I mean, because yeah, people, yeah. people constantly accuse me of teaching moral influence theory. It's a couple of reasons for that. I mm-hmm. mentioned earlier about the maturity level. When people are at level four moral development, that's law and order, and they teach penal substitution theology. Mm. Cognitively and developmentally speaking, um, there are seven levels of moral decision making, but people can only comprehend one level above the level they're currently functioning at. And so uh, p- uh, level four law and order people will always see people um, above them at level five, because that's the next level they're able to even process. They can't see level six. They can't see level seven. And so they always project out and say, this becomes diagnostic that they're stuck at level four is really what happens. And so that's why they always say that. Um, but I can shoot I can shoot that down, and I've done that. I've done it in my books. I've done it in my, my speaking and show that the seven levels of moral decision-making actually, actually correspond to seven different uh, atonement theories. The level mm. one is satisfaction and Level two is the ransom theory. Level three is the governmental theory. Level four is the penal substitution theory. Level five is the moral influence theory. Uh, level six is the Christus Victor theory. And level seven is what we teach. The actual healing of all creation is level mm. seven. And uh, so the seven levels correspond to the argument. People at different levels are arguing back and forth constantly because of their actual maturity level and not ability to comprehend the different levels. And so the reality, mm. why did Christ have to die for our salvation? First off, Christ had to become human. Because sin, to save human beings from sin, required the sin condition be eradicated from a human being by a human being who chose with human abilities to be perfectly loyal to God and with human abilities to live out God's living law of love, the law upon which life is designed by God to operate. Once Adam sinned, no human being could do that. So Christ took upon himself our humanity— uh, so that by his death he might destroy him, holds the power of death that is the devil. And also, um, he took upon our humanity so he could be tempted on all points like we are, yet without sin. And so in Jesus' humanity, he suffered the temptations in the same way we do. He was tempted outside himself. And in Gethsemane, he's te- he was tempted with human emotions. James 1, we're tempted by our own desires. And so he's felt the weight or the pull of what this fallen nature can do when he anguished so deeply with human anxiety, tempting him to save self. That's what the temptation was, save Mm. self. If it's possible, but every time the temptation came, Christ chose with his human ability to love. No one can take my life. I will give it freely. Mm. And in the humanity of Jesus, Jesus chose with his human will to live out God's law of love perfectly, thereby destroying the infection of sin and death, the carnal nature, if you will, at the cross. And thus he rose with a purified humanity, the second head of humanity, becoming the new human branch to the human family that we through faith can connect and the Holy Spirit takes this victory, reproduces it in us. We get a new heart and right spirit with new drives and desires that he worked out on our behalf. And so Mm. it was actual, Mm. literal accomplishment to reveal the truth, to win us to trust and to solidify the angels unfallen in their loyalty. So that's the moral part, revealing truth to to morally influence us. But then he also accomplished what was necessary to cure us, a perfect human character 
it says in Hebrews 5, 9, that once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all that who obey him. Made perfect? Wasn't he always perfect? No, he was always sinless. Bible perfection is about maturity of character. And mm. God can create sinless beings like angels and Adam and Eve and Eden. But character has to be developed by the free will choices of the being. And no human being after Adam fell could develop a sinless, perfect, holy character. So Christ took upon himself the human nature and, hum and humanity and developed a sinless, perfect human nature, human character, and, and became the source of salvation for us. So two elements, truth to witness and trust and a new human nature character developed by Christ that we receive through faith. Mm. And then when you look at the ransom that's paid, when you use the ransom metaphor, a ransom is the price necessary to free one in bondage. What holds us in bondage? The lies we believe about God that Satan tells holds us in bondage and our own fallen nature. And what sets us free? The truth will set you free. It sets us free to trust. And when we trust, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in. We become partakers of the divine nature. We get a new nature. And so the ransom price, truth, and a new godly nature developed by Christ, revealed by Christ, is paid to us. We receive the ransom price. But it's a literal accomplishment. In the same way, if you had a child dying of renal failure and you donated a kidney to save them, we could say you paid a high price to save your child. And you did. That's the price you paid. It wasn't a legal price. It wasn't to the administration. Who received the payment? Your child received the payment. They got the kidney. Hmm. Hmm. So, you, so essentially, you, you would... Uh, you would agree and again we don't have to linger on this if you know longer than necessary but i'm, I'm i guess I, i'm just curious um you know you would agree that there that there are shades of truth in 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 all the atonement theories and for those who are listening who have no idea about atonement theory it's a deep rabbit hole it's a deep no, iceberg no 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 yeah? i don't agree no okay oh you don't you you, you say no you, no you don't. no i have to clarify that okay yeah please do no no so the satisfaction theory and I explain these. There's seven theories. There is a righteous understanding of the satisfaction theory, and you have that in Isaiah. And what satisfies? If you have a child that's dying of leukemia, they're dying of leukemia. What's the only thing that will truly satisfy you? Healing. Think of your child dying. What's the oh, only thing that's okay. going to satisfy you? Truly satisfy you? Resurrection. A remedy that cures them, puts the leukemia into remission. And so mm -hmm. in Isaiah, you read about what mm -hmm. Christ did, and the father was satisfied, the satisfaction he had. He was satisfied because what Christ did achieved the remedy that would save his children that he loves. And so that's mm. what satisfied him. The, the mm -hmm. wrong interpretation of satisfaction is God was angry. He was offended. His nature was incensed, and he needed a blood payment. So his wrath was satisfied. That's all fraudulent. The satisfaction mm. was in the achievement and what was accomplished by it. So there's a right way to understand satisfaction in a wrong way, right way to understand ransom in a wrong way, right way to understand. So all those metaphors are there. There's one metaphor that's not in Scripture that's mm. all completely fraudulent, mm -hmm. and that's the level four metaphor penal substitution theology. It is not anywhere in scripture. It's all fraudulent. It's a complete mm. infection. It's Satan's version of government. You only get penal substitution ideas on the need for Christ to die if you accept the lie that God's law works like human law, which is Satan's lie from the beginning. And Ellen White says, in the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared that the law of God cannot be obeyed, that uh, mercy was inconsistent with justice, and should uh, the law be disobeyed, every sin must meet its punishment urged Satan, Desire of Ages 761. In the very beginning in heaven, before earth was created, Satan's alleging that if you break God's law, God must punish. 
That's his mm. life from the opening of the controversy. And we are still teaching it in our church that God is required by law and justice to punish sin, just as much as they deserve, though. Mm. So would you say, I guess if, coming if full I circle... circle back... Oh, go ahead, Anthony. Well, maybe we're heading in the same direction, Sean. I, I guess I, w- I was going to say, I guess yeah. com- coming full circle... You know, we brought you on today, and we 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 wanted to have you to ask you the question: What do you think an Adventist is? And a lot of what I'm hearing you say comes down to sort of these two different Adventisms that are existing in parallel. One that is emphasized what you would call like a Roman penal substitutionary view of God's law and the way that salvation works, and then you would say th- that there were, that there's a separation between that and what you would believe is the the biblical perspective, which is an emphasis on God's design law and, and character of love, w- would you say when it comes down to, and you don't, you don't have to just answer this now, but I'm curious to go into the journey of what does it mean to be an Adventist? Would you say that it it is a coming back to what you've talked about today, emphasizing design law, the character of, of God as love, et cetera? So, you know, it's a great question because people ask me a lot, are you an Adventist? Mm-hmm. And I have learned to say, tell me what you think one is, mm-hmm. and then I'll tell you whether I am one or not. Mm-hmm. Because I think there's a lot of definitions out there. I remember I asked, well, are you an Adventist? Uh, and I said, well, tell me what you think one is. Well, they're those people who don't believe in blood transfusions, aren't they? Well, no, mm. not one of those. No. <laughs> uh, they're those people who don't believe in taking any medicine and only praying for healing, aren't they? No, not one of those. Uh, mm. And so, so it is important to ask that question. What is an Adventist? Somebody says, "Are you an Adventist?" For me, I'm really. I am not. I, I am. I do not believe that people are saved by denominational affiliation. Hmm. Sure. I used sure. to believe that. Mm-hmm. I was raised in the Adventist Church to believe that if you weren't part of that organization, that you were in darkness. And in fact, we have dark counties, don't we? And what's a dark county in America? It's a county without an Adventist church. What's the implication of that idea? Can't right, be any right. light there. Mm. Nobody can know Jesus there. No love. No saved people there. It's really actually quite corrosive to the to the understanding of the true plan of salvation. I think a true Adventist mm. is one who embraces the great controversy perspective about God as Creator and has in their heart the desire to advance that message for the preparing of the world for Christ's return regardless of what denomination they belong to, like the original Adventists in the early, mid-19th century, before they actually became a official mm. organization. They were all Adventists, mm. uh, but they came from a wide variety of backgrounds, but they shared a common principle, common vision for the healing of hearts and minds to prepare the people, if you remember, that message was about preparing the people to meet Jesus. Yeah. That's a, so do you that's think a it was a mistake to, to organize? I was just going to say, do you think it's a, a mistake to organize the way that we did? That that becoming this structure instead of a movement, as you just described, was what began that process alongside what happened at 1888? No, I don't think it was a mistake to organize. I think it was a mistake to allow the organization to be taken over by those who uh, practice Roman Christianity instead of the true gospel Christianity that the... Uh, that and, and you notice what they did. After the, mm. the Ro- after the Romanizers took over the Adventist Church, what they do with Ellen Wall? Bye bye. They shipped her to Australia. Right, right, right. right. Pull, yeah. Pull, pull out a globe. Look at the, uh, North America where the church leadership was, and ask where on the globe 
can we put her that's the farthest, farthest geographically away. <laughs> away from us? It's, it's literally the opposite <laughs> side of the globe. As far yeah. away as you can possibly get on this planet. If they had a ship to the moon, they'd probably have sent her there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Okay. Because she, and then, and then you read her writings. Anybody who's listened to this, who's questioning if I really know what I'm talking about. After 1888, Ellen White wrote Steps to Christ, Christ's Object Lessons, Thoughts on the Mount of Blessings, Desire of Ages. I challenge you to read those four books. Hmm. You read those four books after 1888, and you will come away teaching and thinking what I teach and think. This hmm. is the message that 1888 was to bring to our church, and it's the message that kind of got pushed to the side and replaced with this penal legal fraud. So when you say that, uh, this is the thing again, going back to it is, is our church leaders would say they've read those books and love those books and know them like the back of their hands. So how do you read those books uh, and still come away with penal substitution as, as you describe it? And what you've said today in, in response to that is surprisingly, I think, I think many Adventists would hear what you've said, how you've defined what a true Adventist is and say, well, that, that's pretty traditional. That's actually pretty, as, and you know, we have these sometimes arbitrary categories of traditional, progressive, liberal, conservative, whatever. But I think many would, would hear that and say, that's, that's a pretty traditional message, which seems almost like an interesting paradox to what you shared today. Are you saying that our church leaders would actually say that God's law functions the way I describe design law, the protocols upon which the creator built reality to operate? Would you say that they would agree with me on that? Because every leader hmm, that yeah. I've talked to says that's true for the laws of physics and the laws of health. But they all say the moral laws are imposed, like Roman law. They all have told me that. Hmm. So we are I, not teaching the same thing, and they are not mm -hmm. in agreement with me. And if you think the, the moral law is imposed, then when you read those books, you have a filter on your mind. So okay. that when you read those books, that filter blinds you. And this is what happened to the Jews in Christ's day. They're reading this. You search the scriptures. You think you find eternal life. These are they the teach of me. They couldn't see it because they had a filter. They hmm. read the book. Didn't help them. So if you have the filter on your mind that God's law works like human law, and worse, you have written, you've written treatises, you've written doctoral dissertations, you've written magazine articles, you've spoken publicly on the penal substitution theology, your name is under all types of doctrinal dissertations, you've written in the 27 fundamental beliefs, the, the section on what this means that I quoted a minute ago, your name, your ego, your reputation is now on the line. You think they're actually going to come back and say, you know what I've been teaching for 25 years is wrong? Yeah, I mean, that's the heavy thing. And I, I agree. I, I agree with you that there is a lot of pressure organizationally, culturally, that there isn't that sense of, mm -hmm. hey, can we understand this in a different way, in a more open way? And can we can we address areas that we didn't get right? Um, and there is that that sense of, you know, the intellectual arrogance, uh, theological arrogance that doesn't leave a lot of space for that to happen um, in an open way, at least, at least well, I'm gonna tell in you, practice. Reason, but, let me tell you this. At, at Common Reason Ministries, we, I'd say this, I'm going to say it on your show. We are not here to tell anybody what to think. God has given everybody their own individuality, their own identity, their own ability to think and reason. Everybody should be fully persuaded in their own mind, Paul says in Romans 14. And in Hebrews, the mature are those who develop by practice the ability to discern. We do, and I intend to challenge people's idea, hopefully to motivate them to then dig into the, the, the resources themselves and study under Holy Spirit guidance for themselves to come to their own conclusion. But don't believe something because Dr. Jennings said, I would hate to have somebody say, hmm. why do you believe this? Well, Dr. Jennings said, that would be mm -hmm. an awful reason to believe something. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. can say, Dr. Jennings said it, and then I went and studied 
You know, it's like, why do you believe two plus two is four? Well, my math teacher said it was. That'd be a terrible reason to believe it. I'm glad I had a math teacher to teach me that, but now I understand it. So I know why it's it's, it's right. And so, so our, our job at Common Reason Ministries is not to tell people what to think ever, ever. Mm. We don't want to indoctrinate in a way of thinking. We want to teach people how to critically reason for themselves so they can come to their own conclusion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Do you feel like when when you look at creating a climate, because that's what you're trying to do through your ministry, Come in Reason, is having a space that does feel like a safe space to push and encourage people and build up a, uh, a community where where there can be a reframing of of who God is and what it means to be his follower and to, to grow in him, to be transformed through Christ inside you in a, in a meaningful way. And, and obviously your goal is to get people to that level seven, like, you know, analyze people are at different levels, help them to reach that, that level seven of you called it the moral levels, the moral ideas, moral development, moral development. Mm -hmm. And, and when you look at Adventism from a global perspective or a rapidly growing church worldwide, do you feel optimistic about our church at large um, with the direction it's going? And I think I know the answer to that, but I, I want to ask you directly, like, how do you feel about the future of the Adventist church at large? And I know you could you could address that organizationally versus just the Adventist people, but how, how do you feel about the future of Adventism? I honestly don't think about that. I'll be honest. I have mm. separated myself from the church politic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I, I have a passion for a message that I really believe is the message mm-hmm. of, of this time, for this time, for the people of this time, regardless of, of their background and denomination affiliation. This message is the message of creator worship. It's a message of understanding how life is constructed by our creator to operate, how we can, through faith and trust in him, make choice to align ourselves with his principles and experience the healing and the joy mm-hmm. and the transformation that comes regardless of our organizational affiliation. Mm-hmm. And so that message is the passion of our ministry to share with all people. And this is why we have a growing number of people from a wide range of Christian backgrounds that are embracing and, and applying uh, this message that we're teaching because it is transformational in their life. And that's what happens when you apply the laws of health. You always get healthier and they notice that. So the church politic is a different question for me. And I, I really have divorced myself from concerns about what the church, I really have very little interest in mm. what the church politic is doing. Should we vote this up or that up? Should we do this or that? To me, that's, a, that's really a, a sideshow. I will tell you this, it became very real during COVID, however. Mm. And I did call the church out on multiple times because they had an opportunity. Hmm. They had the opportunity. This COVID thing was a worldwide event mm-hmm. in which all the governments of the world essentially colluded together to coerce consciences of people, restrict liberties, including speech and worship. You know, worship was restricted in many places. Hmm. And where was the li- religious liberty department of our church? Where was the mm. organization? What would have happened if the Seventh-day Adventist institution would have directed all of its official body, the, the churches, the clinics, the schools, the, the universities, the hospitals, to stand for liberty of conscience? 
Uh, not to, to go for or against a treatment, not to say get it or don't get it. Simply say respect the individuality of the person and let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. Do not coerce conscience. Do not restrict. If people want to go to church, let them go to church. If people want to get ejection, let them get it. If they don't want to get it, don't. We respect liberty of conscience. What would have happened? The whole world would have said, who are these people? Hmm. An opportunity to give the entire three angels messages to the whole world like this. But what did the official church do? They colluded with beastly governments to coerce the consciences of their own employees, their own students, their own patients, to put mandates on people who didn't want them. It was shut down churches and ministries. It was beastly. It was ghastly. And it's exactly Mm. what you get when you have an imperial Roman god with an imperial Roman system of rules. You go along with imperialism and coerce people. Mm. Well, Tim, you, you're definitely do you not... Wrong? Do you think I overstate that? Do you think I overstated that? Because I, I have gotten letters from all over from Adventist employees mm-hmm. and Adventist students who were coerced and pressured by the Adventist system to act in a way or they'd be punished. They would, they would be kicked out of school. They would lose their scholarships. They would lose their job. Hmm. Simply because they didn't want an experiment. Remember, it was a medical experiment with an emergency use authorization. It wasn't actual validated treatment. Ex- medical experimentation we coerced people into. It's quite corrosive. And people still live in denial. They want to say, oh, no, it was just medical. No, it was, it, was, it was ugly. And it was a warm-up to what's coming next. And remember the reason for it. Well, we love people. We just want to save lives. Yeah. That's why we burned those people at the stake in the Dark Ages. We didn't want to save their temporal life. We wanted to save their souls for all eternity. That's mm-hmm. what we're doing. Because we're, if we do it and they still and they don't recant, well, at least we can give them last rites and we can send them to, to heaven and not have them go to hell. We're trying to save their soul. I mean, it's the right to do it. Mm. Same principles, different situation. It's yeah. quite corrosive. That's what you get with Romanism. Yeah. So talking with you over the last hour and a half has has helped, for me at least, and I know for the, the guys to clarify you know, your position on, on the church, what your goals are with, with your ministry. And I know that with this issue of COVID, we, we, (laughs) I, I, we put in kind of something to discuss was, was obviously the divide within liberal and and conservative Adventism, but you've, you've expanded a much bigger picture of, you're not concerned about the, the politics of church. You, you want to focus on, on just the heart of, of what ministry is going to look like this, this movement of people that the Holy spirit can work through and, and transform lives. And it, it, it just still seems like we're living in a time where even that statement will come from every which side, whether it's the organizational church, whether it's a conservative or liberal, um, not just Adventist, but even a Christian where this, this idea of, of truly following God and focusing on the on the main things of of what matters most in being a follower of Jesus and building the kingdom of heaven right now and 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 looking towards his soon return all of those things it still feels like there's just going to be this combative spirit so what you just mm. spoke about Tim a lot of the principles you know it sounds good but i can already in the in my mind and maybe it's it's my maybe i'm not on a high enough level yet i'm not on level 7 my mind starts going and racing around the immediate responses to what you just said specifically in the context of covid and and you know what the church decided to do because there's beyond the Adventist church there's obviously been an incredible split and a divide on 
you know, what to do and what not to do when it comes to mandates, when it comes to, uh, you know, getting together, when it comes to masks, vaccinations, those are all those, those, uh, conversations you try to avoid in the, at Thanksgiving dinner, because it creates (laughs) such a a crazy, (laughs) a crazy tense atmosphere. And, and you're, you're very bold to just, you know, speak freely. And, and I respect that. I also know that, um, it, it also has, uh, on, on your side, had had some people respond pretty strongly against the way that you've talked about it. And and I understand a bit better now the way that you see the Adventist Church, especially organizationally, that that's not a concern of yours. So, you know, I know there was a, a, a doctor that responded to you on Adventist Today about some concerns about the way that you talked about COVID. And, and again, and everything that he wrote has been proven wrong and everything that I've written has been proven true. So... Mm. Every every he was everything that he he said has been proven now in the data to be wrong, and everything that I've I've written has been proven to be true. Do so you know I'll, why? Do you know why? See, this is what I told people: you didn't have to know the science. There was all types of articles. It was deep. It was like confusing. You only had to know the principles. If you know the methods and principles, people who love truth do not seek to censor, silence, and stop other voices from asking legitimate and fair questions and Mm. digging into the evidence, checking outcomes and measures. They don't seek the silence. They don't censor. They don't be platform. That Mm. method is not godly. The truth can afford to be fair. It loses nothing by close investigation, Ellen White Mm -hmm. says. So Mm -hmm. number one, people who are seeing the truth are open and they want to be critiqued. This is traditional science. Here's my hypothesis. Check it out. Show me where it's wrong. Mm -hmm. So you can see that method. Additionally, people, historic medical ethics, do not coerce patients to take treatments. You never induce them with bribes. Here, I'll pay you 50 bucks to take this medicine, or we're going to fire you from your job if you don't take this. This is considered unethical. It's, it's wrong to do. We only historically quarantine symptomatic people. We never quarantine healthy people historically. So if you actually just understood the methods and principles without getting derailed of the science, you would have understood very quickly that something nefarious was happening here. We're violating all the historical principles. We're putting coercion on people. We're bribing people for an experimentation with no evidence of good outcomes uh, down the road because we don't have any studies of brand new technology. We're deplatforming people who are raising questions. And then when the evidence starts coming in, we demonstrate that, in fact, every single data point that, that justified this What's fraudulent? For instance, they knew from the very beginning of the Wuhan outbreak that the that to a population at large that the original COVID strain had no more lethality to the combat to the population at large than a seasonal flu. Never did. When do you shut down all the world for a seasonal flu outbreak? Never. And this was no more lethal than that. And that data was known. Stanford epidemiologist pointed this out in early 2020, and he was silenced and deplatformed. And so was another epidemiologist that pointed this out because it did not fit the goal in the narrative. And if anybody actually took the time to look, you could watch the methods, silencing, deplatforming. These are all ungodly methods. You didn't have to get into the science. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll leave it, you know, and and again, we could talk for a long time about about these things, I think big picture, I wanted to just have us reflect on, you know, the reality is, and we would probably all be in agreement that the world is becoming a more divided place. And it's, it's becoming more and more difficult to have. uh, And maybe this goes to even the essence of your, the, the name of your ministry, which is to come and reason. Right. And I think that's our desire too, at, at seeking what they sought is for us to get together 
to talk openly and honestly and and talk mm-hmm. to a, a spectrum of people, which we have. We've talked to uh, people that beyond just the labels of liberal conservative, we've spoken with you and you have a very unique perspective on what mm-hmm. it means to be a follower of Jesus, how we interpret scripture. And, and we appreciate that. And so there needs to be more spaces where we can, we can talk like this, not just, you know, on, on this podcast. I hope that people that are listening. Let me, let me, let me, let me, be... let me say something else. You said that things are becoming more divided. Mm-hmm. This is a sign of the times. Historically, sure, sure. there's always been, there's always been three groups of people. A very small number of people who are perfectly sealed into <clears throat> salvation, like Job. Nothing could shake Job out of that. There's always been a few people like that in history. There's been a mm-hmm. few people who are totally hardened against God, and no amount of truth will have any impact on them. Some of those were in Sodom and other places, the time of the flood. Nobody got on the ark except eight. And so you got these people that are hardened against the Lord. And then there's been a group of people in the middle that aren't sealed to the Lord, and they're not hard yet. They can be swayed to either group. Before mm. Christ returns, that middle group goes away. That middle group will either harden permanently against God where they have no truth or love will have any good impact on them, or they will seal to God's kingdom where no deception and no tribulation will shake them out of it. And that's what we're seeing. So this division is exactly a sign of the times in which we're in and Christ is coming very soon. And we should actually lift up our head and be encouraged by that. And then when you talk about ultimately how we're divided, Jesus said at the end of time that he will say, those of you. Um, on my right hand come the sheep and the goats said because what i was hungry and you fed me i was naked and you clothed me i was in prison and you visited me uh etc et when did we do this as you did under the least of these my brethren you did it under me what i'm saying is how we choose in governance mm-hmm. of ourselves to treat other people determines which law gets written mm-hmm. into our character If we choose to use the methods of the governments of this world to coerce other people, we mark ourselves beastly and we solidify our character in authoritarian mechanisms. If Hmm. we choose instead to self-sacrificially love other people and build up and protect other people, then we put into our character the law of Jesus Christ and we are sealed to his kingdom. And so this is where it will come down to. It won't come down to which denomination you're in won't come down to which way you were baptized. It won't come Mm. down to which organization you affiliate with. It will come down to the law you choose and governance of self and how you treat your neighbor. Mm. Wow. That's a powerful... I I appreciate... Yeah. yeah, There's so much for us to chew on here. And and I hope that when we're we're silent, we're we're thinking and processing because, Mm -hmm. you know, we've, we've done this now for close to five years. We've spoken to so many different people not just on this series of what is an Adventist. And it, it, it really has opened us to so many discussions and in, in the way that we process, you know, what our church is supposed to be about, both on a, a larger picture as a group, as a movement, but also personally what what God is calling each one of us to do in our hearts um, and and in our minds. And I really appreciate your your candidness, your ability to mm-hmm to look at this in a big picture way. And that's, that's an area of I've struggled with is a lot of times we get caught in the weeds or the small, you know, pieces of, yeah, again, I call it legalism where, where it's just, we, we get our heads in the sand where we don't see the big picture of what God is trying to do. And it creates fear. I think there's a mm. lot of, you know, structurally that I really resonate with what you're talking about. I, I have a lot that I want to process through and, and, and think about with this. And, well, so maybe, I, I know. maybe uh, sometime down the road after you process this a few months, sure, we sure. have another call and do it again. 
Yeah, we're, we're always open for discussion. And uh, I hope that uh, for those listening too, we want to always create an open forum where people can, can share their thoughts. And we'll, of course, share with you any, any questions or, or thoughts that we get from, from people that are listening as well. Because uh, it's not just about the, the three or four of us. Uh, we we want to have that community or space where we can discuss these things. Um, and so, again, thank you so much for, for sharing with us. I know, again, that you're, yes. you're busy. You have so much going on. But you, you took the time to talk with us. And your passion speaks through like it's no, there's yep. no um, sense of obligation in your mind or, or in your voice, the way that you speak or carry yourself. It's very clear that you have a deep passion for this, that, that you feel God has, has given you this, this time and place to be. And so uh, you have a very unique perspective, both being a psychiatrist and um, mixing that with, you know, what it means to, you know, live a Christ-centered life. And so you have a unique perspective on what that looks like. So Again, thank you for, for being with us. Um, as we kind of close up, is there, I know we've mentioned your website, comeinreason.com. Is there anything else you want our listeners to know about that you're doing um, right now? I'm the medical director at Honey Lake Clinic, which is the only Christian residential treatment program for psychiatric illnesses in the country. And it's a holistic um, dealing with, all, with diet, exercise, psychology, um, medications, if you need them, the whole thing. People stay 30 to 60 days to come here. And it's, it's a really a, a life transforming place for people. So if people have those types of problems or know people who do, it might be a resource for them to check out and they can find it online, Honey Lake Clinic. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, we, we've, we've, we've gone for a while here. I'd love to, like you said, if we ever talked in the future, there's things like the Avenus health meshes that are, uh, that would open a whole other can of worms talking about, do we, Very true. you know, what do we even do with the Avenus health health message? And again, we don't have time now, but I'd love to hear your perspective among others. Uh, cause that's another really challenging topic too. So, um, but I, I appreciate, you know, the work you're doing. I really, uh, love the idea of holistic healing and uh, that sounds really cool. I'd love to see what you're doing down there. So, Again, thank you so much for being with us, and uh, we hope Thanks to for having me. Hope to Beautiful. have uh, Thanks, more to share and, and process after this. So, thank you. Thanks. Well, all right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Seeking What They Sought. Before we rush to a close, wanted to just pause and say thank you. We are really, really grateful for you all, not only for listening, but for all the conversations that we've been having recently uh, from emails and messages, DMs, uh, text messages you've sent us if you know us. Uh, we are just really, really grateful for those conversations. They're the reason we did this podcast and uh, we're just really, really uh, grateful for you all. So please, if you haven't, if you have thoughts and you haven't reached out, uh, please uh, send us an email um, or send us uh, just a DM on Instagram or, uh, or you know, drop a comment on one of the one of the posts we would love to have conversations and uh, hear what you think now if you didn't know we actually have a patreon there are some fun cool perks that you get for signing up it's going a long way to, to help us make more content like this uh, for you guys and we we really appreciate it so if you want to support us you can hit up the patreon there's a link in our our, our bio on instagram and uh, we would be really really grateful well i think that's just about it so we will see you guys next time on seeking what they saw